Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Description of the body of Christ. It's all a mystery. But now that it's been revealed, Paul says, I am the apostle of that mystery. I am the apostle, which is to share the mystery of the kingdom. Is that door open? No, it's not open. It's just loud out there, I guess. And he says, um, God revealed it to him. How? By revelation. Okay. God revealed it to Paul. When did God reveal it to Paul? We don't know. Um, some say it's probably in his Arabian experience in Galatians chapter 3, a possibility there. I don't know when God revealed it to Paul. All I know is that God revealed to Paul the mystery, that is, the church. And, it's a, and he says in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, and it has now been revealed. It was not made known earlier. Now it's been revealed. And what is it? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. It was a mystery. It was hidden. It is now revealed. And uh, it's interesting, uh, Paul says, I became a minister of this. How? By the gift of God. God gave Paul a gift, and that gift was to serve him. That was the gift. And it was God's power. The point Paul is making is that he has been commissioned by God to be an apostle of the mystery. The mystery of the church, which in other ages was not made known, now it is made known. And understand, it's not because God changed his mind, it's not because God came up with another plan, it was there all along, but it's just something God didn't tell us. God didn't reveal it. And verse 8 says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, was this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is a statement of incredulity. Paul cannot believe that God chose him to be a messenger. Um, and, and I think we all need to understand that. Um, God gave each of us, a, and, I, and this gets into a little bit here, the spiritual gifts, which we are going to get to in, in Ephesians 4. But when you came a believer, God gave you a spiritual gift. What's that? A divine enablement to serve the body of Christ. It could be teaching, it could be preaching, it could be helps, it could be mercy, it could be giving. There's, and there, th those are just representative things, you understand that. It's not an exhaustive list, it's just some representative things. And that spiritual gift was given for you to serve Christ. And spiritual gifts are not given to minister to yourself. Now see, that'll just blow the whole charismatic issue right out of the water. Because in there, why do you have a gift? 
Why, why, what's the gift of tongues? Well, it's to edify yourself. Well, that's not what a spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is not given to edify you. A spiritual gift is given for you to edify the body. Does my gift of teaching help me if I just sit at home? No. Not at all. Um, is your pastor's gift of preaching, is that good if he's all by himself in the church? His gift is given to minister to the body of Christ. And that's what Paul says here. I, I've been given this grace. And what was that gift that I should preach among the Gentiles? The unsearchable riches of Christ and to make, known, make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. See, see here's the thing. The Old Testament was a picture book pointing to the fulfillment, the reality of Christ. Who is what God wanted to reveal all along, but he did not reveal it at the beginning. He gave us pictures. And from the beginning of the ages, it's been hidden by God. But now he's revealed it to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God may be known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Wow, there's interesting thing. Why did God choose to work through the church? Why did God choose to bring this entity into being? To display His manifold wisdom. To who? To the angels. That's the principalities and powers in heavenly places. And listen, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal purpose. When did God decide to do this? When did, when did God make this plan? Before time began. This, this whole, this is what Paul's trying to get at here. Because see, one of the arguments, as a Jew, what are you going to be saying about the church? As a Jew, as a good Pharisee, what would you say about the church? That's plan B. It's plan B. Not, that's not what God does. God, God called us. You know, here we have the Old Testament Scriptures. Look, here's the book of Moses. You know, this thing, the church, that's an aberration. That's heresy. And Paul's saying, no, it wasn't. It was always part of God's eternal purpose and plan. And by the way, here's the other thing, too, to understand. Why, why this is so necessary for Paul to emphasize this. He's trying to get him to understand that God didn't change his mind. Um, that's why you have Romans 9, 10, and 11 in your Bible. Romans 9, 10, 11 is not put there as a hiccup by God. It's part of Paul's essential argument about salvation because what the Jew is going to say when Paul's going through this whole book of Romans and he starts talking about salvation by grace and faith and believing and all of that, the Jew is going to say, now wait a minute, what happened to the law? What happened to those ceremonies? What about this? What about that? And Paul has to tell them very clearly that 
It was all part of God's eternal sovereign plan, one. And two, God did not change his mind. See, the, the false understanding of the Jew when they would when they first be approached by the gospel saying, well, God, God's changed the rules now. I mean, God gave us all these rules and regulations, and this is how we would approach him, and now God's all of a sudden changed his mind, and we don't have to do that anymore? Now, if that's true, what would be the danger? What if God did change his mind? He might change it again. Yeah. Maybe we'll get to heaven for a few billion years and God says, I've changed the rules and some of you ain't going to like it. You know, um, the whole point there is Paul has to make it very clear that the church, in, in Romans, if you want to understand what Paul's trying to make in Romans, the argument that salvation by faith alone has always been God's design and plan. God's not changed his mind. God's not rewritten the rules. And in Ephesians, Paul is trying to get the Jew to understand in the section in 2 and 3 is that the church is not an aberration. It is not God deciding to just arbitrarily do something new. It's not God deciding, well, see, if the, you know, if the Jews hadn't rejected me, I wouldn't, I got to think of what I'm going to do now. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just have the church. Paul rather is trying to get them to understand it was always from eternity past part of God's sovereign design and plan for the church. It is not an afterthought. It was there from eternity past. Before time began, God had one sovereign, eternal plan, and the church is an integral part of that. And it's always been that way. Just because God didn't tell us about it doesn't make it invalid. And that's what he needs to get them to understand. Eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. How do you have access to God? It's through Christ. And both of us, i.e. Jew and Gentile, both of us have access to the Father through Jesus Christ equally. There's no difference. We all have access. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Don't get upset because I'm going through trials, because this is part of God's... I'm just preaching part of God's eternal plan. Don't lose heart. And when Paul wrote this, where was he? In prison. And then in verses 14, he, he, we have one of the second of Paul's prayers. We have one prayer in chapter 1. We have another prayer here. For this reason, what reason? That he has been given this ministry to present the mystery of God that in Christ all have access, which was part of God's eternal sovereign plan. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you. Um, this is interesting, because here Paul is given his prayer for the Ephesian believers. 
or whoever the book is written to, remember, we think it's a circular letter, and it's certainly applicable to us. Paul is asking that God would grant some specific requests. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Number one, Paul's first prayer request is strengthened with God's power through the inner man. To have God's strength. How many times do we pray for that for people? The average Christian, how many times do they pray? Yeah, we're in trouble. The, the, the whole point here, you know, I, I think, and I've said this in some of the other classes I've taught, if, if Paul were to show up at our average prayer meeting, he'd probably throw up all over the floor listening to some of the things we ask God for. And some of the things that are on our mind. You know, we... We pray, you know, we're having trouble because, you know, we're getting a little persecution at church. And Paul rose, as I say, good night, you know, at Lystra. They stoned me and threw me outside. The city is dead. I had to get up, go back in, and finish the sermon. We're inconvenienced because we're under the weather for a few days. And Paul talks about being three days and nights out on the open ocean, clinging to a plank. You know, we, we get, you know, I... It's almost like, you know, to use the metaphor, you know, bodybuilding. We are so anemically weak as believers that things that knock us on our spiritual hind ends wouldn't even phase the Apostle Paul. He wouldn't even think of it. Or even Christians on the other side of the world. Or even some of the believers on the other side of the world. You know, I was just thinking Arnold. I mean, you know, I look at Arnold, and here's this guy, you know, muscles on muscles on muscles. You know, and he, you know, for something that means a struggle to him, it's nothing. Why? Because he's conditioned himself to have that strength. And spiritually, I think we could take a lesson from that of spiritual conditioning. Yeah, you're... Yeah. I had something very, that really convicted me of the radio. Somebody said um, God was primarily interested in our character rather than our comfort. And um, just looking back, looking at our prayers, most of the times we are praying for things that are comfort and relative rather than for God to build character in us. And I think you know, these prayers, I was just reading this passage yesterday, again, I was convicted, you know. When I saw the kinds of things that Paul's going about, it was uh, things that pertain to character. What we do in our prayer meetings, we're praying for comfort items. How many of you have prayer meetings at your church? Take a note, page. Just, just do this. This would be cool. For the next five or six weeks, take, take a notepad and, and just make two columns. Put on one side comfort, on the other side put character, and just check off. Don't, don't, say any, don't tell anybody you're doing it. This is an experiment. But just put a check mark. When somebody asks for a prayer request for comfort, put a check mark. When he asks for character, put a check mark. And 
you know, if, if I was a betting man, I would bet you which column would have the most tick marks in it. Why? Why? Why is it that way? We're self-centered. Is it wrong to pray that God would heal somebody necessarily? No. But that's all we pray about. Romans 8.26, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Paul never prayed for comfort. Paul prayed for character, not only for himself, but for anybody that he was called upon to pray for. It was not comfort. Um, on the way home every once in a while, I hear the, um, the voice of the martyrs on WCRF. And it, it's sort of good to hear that. But, but one of the things that bothers me in the back of my mind is I wonder sometimes what motivates that. Is it really to weep with them that weep and rejoice with them that rejoice? Or is it God, don't let them suffer? Is suffering a bad thing? No, no. Why do we always make it such a bad thing now? We don't like it. It's really not bad if you have right. See, we have, we have churches today full of people who say, if you're suffering, there's something wrong. You don't have faith or whatever. And um, I can't help but think that, uh, you know, I, I look at Paul. Did Paul pray that God would alleviate suffering? No. Never. I don't find any prayer request in the entire New Testament by Paul that God would eliminate suffering. God, Paul did not pray that things would go well with the Christian churches in the sense that the heat would go down. He did not pray that they would be financially wealthy. No. He did not pray that they would have good jobs. He certainly did not pray that they would all be in good health. He prayed that God would give them understanding and spiritual strength and stability and a comprehension of God's will. And in spite of their persecution, to be faithful witnesses to Him. That's what Paul prayed for. And that's why I think it'd be a neat experiment. I mean, you go do what you want, but I, you know, just, take, just take a sheet of paper and just write the tick marks down. And if you get a little prayer sheet, look at the prayer sheet and see how many of them have to do with creature comforts. Either you know, financial problems or, or health problems or whatever. And how many of them have to do with God developing spiritual character in somebody? And see which one has the most tick marks. Paul said, I want God to give you strength, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Inner spiritual strength. And again, I think that there are things that, that knock us, me, you, down that Paul wouldn't even, he wouldn't even know they hit him. He, he, it wouldn't even bother him. And us, it knocks us out of our spiritual trees for days on end. Why? Because we're not spiritually strong. We're not strengthened. And then he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does that mean? Well, Christ is already there. 
if you're a believer, Christ is in your hearts. But I think this is talking about the fullness of the knowledge of Him being there. There's something that extends behind His just existence here to where you really understand the fullness of Christ, His power in you. That you being rooted and grounded in love. There's another one, that you would be grounded and rooted in God's love for one another. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Paul prays that the people would have spiritual strength, spiritual presence in the sense of Christ there, and spiritual understanding to know their riches in Christ. That's what he wants them. It's really a powerful prayer. You know that we can really use To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of Christ. Paul prays for spiritual insight, spiritual understanding, spiritual stability. That's the important, that's character, that's the important stuff. That's what God's interested in. Yeah, but see what we do is we get all sidetracked on all this little comfort stuff down here. God wants character. And he says here, and then verse 20, Not to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is able to do far beyond anything that you can even dream of. The story goes of a new preacher. Vance Havner shared this about a new preacher that came into this particular town and was preaching in the church. And after a couple of weeks... Someone asked him, says, how do you like the new preacher? He says, wonderful, wonderful, man of God, man of prayer. He said, man of prayer? He said, yeah, he asked God for things the other preacher didn't even know God had. <laughs> um, God can do beyond anything you can think of. Now, I'll tell you what, this is where, this is where our struggle lies. Because we want to give God a hand, don't we? We want to help God out. We want to assist Him. Because somehow we think that maybe He can't pull it off. See, Abraham had that problem. God said, I'll make you a father of many nations. Abraham said, well, I'm not even sure how you're going to pull that off, God. So they concocted a plan. You had Hagar. Now we have the whole Arab problem with that. All right? The guy doesn't need our assistance. When we stick our fingers in there, we foul things up. Sort of like Michelangelo saying, or Leonardo da Vinci saying, I'm going to go take a lunch break. Would you finish Mona Lisa's smile for me? You know, you know how I draw. That'd be horrible, you know. Um, the whole point, the whole point is that God does not need our assistance to bring about His divine plans. And He's able to do far beyond anything we could even dream of. So when we're faced with a spiritual problem, how should we approach it? That's always the last thing we do, though, isn't it? 
When you're faced with a spiritual problem in your church, what's the first thing you are tempted to do? Go and try to solve it, try to work it out yourself. I think what it says here is you need to go to God first. He's able to do beyond anything you could even imagine. What D.L. Moody said, the world is yet to see what God can do with one man totally sold out to him. It's spiritual. It's, it, and, and, you know, our fight is spiritual. You know, and that goes back into this whole thing. You know, we look around our society and see a meltdown. You know, you can get out your picket line. You can go march in the parades and all of that. But is that going to really change things? Prayer does. The effectual, fervent prayer... And think about it, you know, I, Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and God turned off the heavens for three and a half years in an entire nation. One man. One man. This is Paul's prayer. Go back and think about this. Go meditate on this prayer. You'll see what Paul really was concerned about. Let's, let's try to get part of chapter 4. Um, we got to do a little bit of catch up here. All right. And uh, we'll see how far we get. I therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is a turning point in the book. We've had three chapters of theology. Three chapters of our position in Christ. Three chapters of Paul talking about the mystery of the church, three chapters talking about election and the fact that God raised you up from the dead and gave you new spiritual life and redeemed you and regenerated you and transformed you. And now on the basis of all of that, this is what you're to do. Walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Why did God call you? He wanted to. But what did he want to produce? A holy people, zealous of good works. Therefore, on the basis of this calling, on the basis of us, and here's the thing, all right? Paul gave him a whole bunch of theology, and then what did he do right at the end of chapter 3? Prayed that God would do what? Give him understanding. And now if they've got understanding, what does he want them to do? Apply it. Boy, I tell you what, I hope you don't take this class just to get some more facts. If it doesn't make a difference in your life, don't take it. Go home and watch Star Trek. You know, it really. You don't, you know, the more you learn, the more you're responsible for. And what happens, I think, is, and I've seen them, you've seen them. You've got Christians that know all kinds of theology. They know this and that, and they can argue election and all that, and you look at their life and it's a total mess. They're an embarrassment to the name of Christ. There's something wrong with this picture. Something wrong with that. If uh, what you know doesn't affect the way you live, you don't know it. And Howard Hendricks said it well. He said sometimes, he says, most Christians are educated beyond their obedience. 
That's just one of those phrases. He had a way of coming up with these things. It just, and I remember him saying that, and I'm just sitting there saying, boy, I'll tell you, that's just so insightful. You know what you should do a lot more than you do it. You're educated beyond your obedience level. And what Paul is wanting the Ephesian church to do here, he says, okay, I've given you theology, and I'm praying that God would give you understanding and knowledge in that, and now here's how you should live on the basis of what you know. The Bible never teaches theology for just theology's sake. It teaches theology to make a difference in your life. It should affect the way you live. And he says, I want you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. God called you to be holy. Now walk worthy of that calling to holiness. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. He's giving some characteristics of what this look at, what walk is going to look like. And one of the things he says with lowliness and gentleness. Lowliness means to think of others more highly than yourself. It's deferring to others. It's not thinking of yourself as God's gift to Christianity. Um, it's not thinking that the kingdom of God is going to come to a grinding halt if, it, you're, if you're not around. God doesn't need you. He, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. You know, this class would go on just perfectly well if I got ran over by a Mack truck tonight. Well, God doesn't. He doesn't need, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need any of us. He uses us. And when somehow we think that wealth wasn't for me, God's program would go derailed. No, God's program would not get derailed. And part of the Christian life, this is body. In the body of Christ, you need to deal with each other in lowliness and gentleness. Um, we're to be gentle in the body of Christ. Uh, the idea there is not to be abrasive, not to be overbearing, to lord it over each other, but to gently care for one another. And then long-suffering. Uh, long-suffering is a good word. There's, there's two words in the Greek New Testament. One of them is um, hupomene. It means to bear up under. And many times that's translated patience. And it usually refers to circumstances. We are to bear up under circumstances. Hupomene. To bear up under circumstances. To... You know, that's the adversity of life. And how do you learn that? You go through it. You go through it. All right. But there's another word, and that's the word here, is macrothumia. And what it is, it comes from two words, macro, which is long, and thumia is to blow your stack, to lose your temper. And what it refers to is someone, it takes a long time for them to lose their temper. We're not to blow our stack. 
all of the time. Do you like being around somebody who's always on the verge of exploding? I don't. I don't want to be around them. In the body of Christ, we are to be long-suffering towards one another. In other words, it should take a very long time for somebody to get you angry. And that's one of the fruit of the Spirit. And then here the other one is bearing one another in love. Some have forbearing. That's a very fascinating word. And what it means is to put up with. There are some people in the body of Christ you just got to put up with them. Um, This is a word used by Christ, by the way, in the Gospels. The disciples came to him and in a a moment sort of of exasperation, how long do I have to put up with you guys? Um, There are some people you just got to put up with. And I I can name some in my own life. They're just, you just got to put up with them. That's part of what it means to be in the body of Christ. There are people in this church that rub me the wrong way. And they'll probably never rub me the right way. What am I to do with them? Be long-suffering, forbear. And it has to do with personality, I think. I mean, I think we all know that there are some people that personality-wise, we just don't mesh with. And we need to forbear them. We need to defer to them at times. That's part of character, by the way. That's part of what it means to have character. And by the way, who's the prime example of this? Jesus. Jesus. You know, when you think of long-suffering, God is not willing that any should perish, but is long-suffering. It takes a while for God to get angry. A while. Forbearing one another in love. What does it mean there? It means that I am to love my believer. Now, by the way, that does not mean that you get along with everybody. In the sense that you're close friends. You know, there's some Christians, I need to love them, but I really can't stand them, and I don't hang around them all that much. But I'm to love them. And it's not because they're bad people, it's just that we have a different personality. We grind on each other. But I am to still love them. And I'm not to, here's the other thing, and I think this is very important. I'm not to allow these personality conflicts to destroy the unity of the body. Because what's it say in verse 3? Endeavoring to keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. God's spirit, does. what does God's spirit bring? Division or unity? Unity. Always. So if you have division, what's true? Somebody's not walking in the Spirit. Now, it could be both of you aren't. But the bottom line is, one of you isn't, at least. Do you know how many people leave churches because uh, they can't forbear other people? 
You know, Paul was sort of an abrasive guy. I don't know if you knew that. He was a type A. You ever have type A's? People just go, 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 go. You know, they, they just, they drop out of warp to sleep. And then they're right back into warp drive. And uh, sometimes they rub you the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, Word for bear one. I think the point of what Paul's trying to make here, folks, and I think this is very true, and that is that within the body of Christ, and, and I'm going to I'm going to use the illustration of the local church. In the body of Christ, there are those people that we don't really get along with very well at times. But that's no excuse to leave the church, and that's no excuse to make that an issue of division. I'm not to do that. I'm not to allow my personality conflicts to destroy the unity of this body of Christ. Rather, I am to put up with the quirks of other people that drive me nuts. Now, is those issues of sin? No. But they're just different ways that we have of doing things. Do you know how many people left open door over personality issues? They have absolutely nothing to do with any theological basis of anything. Too many. And some of them have even come back saying, well, it's no better out there, so they're back. All right. Seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm not joking. I'm going to write a book someday, Stupid Reasons People Leave Churches. And the number one stupid reason is I don't get along with the pastor, or I don't get along with the organist, or I don't get along. What are you to do? Let's see, I'm to be gentle. I'm to be lowly. By the way, usually what it is, is you, the, the, what they're really saying is they didn't get their way. Right, that's right. That's, right. That, that's the real reason. And I say, well, you know, you know, the pastor and I don't get along. In other words, he doesn't do what I want him to do. Well, who said that he has to do what you want him to do? Does, does the pastor work for you? Are you his supervisor spiritually? Are, are you, are you gonna, is he going to give an account to you someday? He's going to give an account to Christ. I don't get my own way. I, I'll, have, I'll let you know, you know. There's a lot of things probably I'd change about this church if, if I was a pastor, but I'm not. God's not called me to be that. It's not, that's not his desire for me. And you know what? If I was the pastor of the church, you know what a lot of people would say about me? The same thing they're saying now. Nothing changes. In the body of Christ, I am, look, I'm telling you what the Bible says. I am to forbear one another. I'm to put up with the personality quirks of other people because they are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I am to love them in spite of their being an irritant to me. I'm to love them. And uh, it's interesting here, it says, striving to keep the unity of the Spirit. So what that tells me is that, by default, what does the Spirit bring? Unity. Unity. And if there's division, I got, the point here is, if you stop making division, what will you have? Unity. Unity. That's the whole point. 
And by the way, let's understand something right off the bat. Does, that does not mean that everybody believes every, everything that everybody else believes. You know, you can have unity and yet have a difference of opinion, can you? That's a part of, by the way, that's just a part of spiritual maturity. Just personally, you know, I've had a lot of people say, well, I left open door because um, it, it's the pastor's way or the highway. I said, no, it's not. They said, yeah, it is. I said, no, it's not. I said, I know. I know him. I said, uh, he and I disagree on a, on a lot of things. It's not his way or the highway. You're allowed to disagree. Well, you're not allowed to get, disagree with the pastor. No, that's not true. I'm telling you it's not true. I, I, he and I disagree on a lot of things. But what don't we do? We don't create division. We don't create division. Um, rather, there's a unity there. Mm -hmm. And part of that is me understanding that when the time comes to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, <clears throat> I am not going to be the one that has to give an account of the spiritual life of this church. It's going to be him. And uh, if, I, if I want my way, what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to get upset and mad and offended and eventually leave. And what am I going to do in the next church when I don't get my way? You're going to be a church hopper. You're going to be a church hopper. I think one reason you have so much of that is I go to church where I go because that's where God has placed me. And I believe that. And for me to, I, don't, I can't just walk out of my church because I don't like this or that. Because God has placed me there for a reason. And, and I'm going to be going against what I feel that he's leading me to do. That's the place where he wants me to go. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm going to like every aspect about it. But he has, you know, I feel that he has placed me in that church for reasons. A few years ago, I was at a conference, um, and, I, and some ex-COD members were there. And I was asked point blank by one of them, said, well, when are you leaving? I said, what? Well, when are you leaving Church of the Open Door? So why do you think I should leave? And they said, well, you know, you don't agree with some of the, some of the theological positions that David Walls has. I said, yeah, I, I don't, but why should I leave? Well, you disagree with them. I said, what's going to happen when I come to your church and I find out something there that I disagree with? What should I do? See, the whole point is, on everything that is essential of eternal consequence, there's 100% agreement. Now, there's a lot of other little itty-bitty things down here that don't amount to anything that may be just, that's no point to leave the church. And then that person asked me, well, don't you think God can use you somewhere else? I said, yeah, but God can use me where I'm at too. Why do I need to leave to be used by God? And I think that goes back to what he says. It should be very, should you leave a church, ever leave a church? Yeah, I think for two reasons. Number one, if that church falls into doctrinal heresy, and by doctrinal heresy I mean if, it, if, it is, if all of a sudden the deity of Christ is going to be removed from the doctrinal statement, if, if some essential theological truth is going to be lost, 
it may be time to leave the church. Another time is when God calls you to go minister somewhere else. But just because you don't get your way, or just because maybe somebody there that irritates you, that you leave, grow up. Yeah, get a life. Grow up. Not only in the church we should practice, but every day of our life at work, home. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Everything. See, what happens is today, see, the day the mentality, and by the way, I'm using the church as a metaphor here, because that's the context that Paul, I think, is talking about, is in the body of Christ, but it's also true in your home. See, what's the, what's the, what's the uh, society tell us? If you don't get along with your spouse, kick them out. Get somebody else. You've got to be happy. That's the whole point. See, that, that goes back to the children of disobedience. That's their thinking. Kick the guy out. Get somebody else. You've got to be happy. The Bible never talks about your happiness as being an issue. It talks about your duty. And you may not get your way, but that doesn't matter. Because if you are lowly and humble and gentle, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because if you don't get your own way here and you go somewhere else, guess what's going to happen when you don't get your own way there? You're going to leave. You have people bouncing from church to church to church because something happened that they don't like and they want to move on. And I look at this here and it says, I am to be long-suffering for bearing one another in love. You see, you've got to realize no matter where you go, it's not perfect. I had a very good friend of mine who got offended by something that happened here at the church which, by the way, was his fault, but he won't believe that. We never do. Never do. He left, and he's not been into a church in five years. And you ask him, why don't you go to church? Well, there's always some reason he doesn't want to go. You know, he doesn't like this position they take or that position, or, you know, they, they, they believe this, and I don't believe that. I don't want to be with them. You know, quite honestly, the only church he'd be happy in is the one he runs. And the problem is nobody would want to join it. The point is, folks, listen, grow up and get a life. Really, just grow up, be mature, get a life, put up with each other, forbear one another in love. Don't let your personality differences destroy the unity of the body. Grow up, be a man, be a woman, don't let these things bother you, and get on with the work of Christ, and quit squabbling over stuff that doesn't matter. I mean, that's what Paul's saying here. Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, and that's what he's trying to get at. And by the way, what Paul's talking about here is the universal body of Christ. We may be able to jump from church to church, but you can't jump out of the universal body. There's one body and one spirit. And the body here is the universal body of Christ. There's only one universal body of Christ. There's only one Holy Spirit. 
There's only one hope of calling. That talks about our salvation. There's only one Lord. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. And there's only one God and Father of all. The point is we're all worshiping the same God. It's interesting to me. I grew up in a very um, legalistic organization called the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. And uh, I could drive, I could get my car right now and I could drive to any one of 20 GARBC churches within the next 30 minutes. I could hit 20, to, probably to 40 of them within 30 minutes of this door. And uh, you talk to people and, you know, they say, why do you go to that church? Well, you know, I don't like the one over there. They have the same doctrinal statement. You believe the same thing. Yeah, you know, but I don't like that. I don't like their music style over there. Or I don't like the pastor. You know, Mrs. McGillicuddy goes to that church and I can't stand her. And I'm thinking, you know, what's wrong with this picture? Why are there 20 churches that believe the exact same thing, have the exact same doctrinal statement, and people can't stand going to other churches because they don't get along with people? What's that say about the unity of Christ? There's something wrong with this picture, folks. There's something wrong here. And I've seen it. I, I it was really interesting. Um, you know, I was, in, I was in one church, and you watch them leak out of this church and go to this other church. And then some guy comes in there that they don't like, and they start leaking out of that when they go to the next one. They're, they're GRBC, but they just go from church to church to church to find the one. But you have the same doctrinal statement. You believe the same theology. And it goes back to this whole thing here. Keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Put up with one another. Forbear one another. There's only one Lord. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. There's only one. Don't hop churches. And by the way, let me tell you this. I believe that your effectiveness in a church is directly proportional to how long you've been there. You show me someone who flits from church to church to church to church. Mm -hmm. How can they establish any kind of ministry in a church? By the way, the New Testament elder, what was he able to, what was he had to do? What did he have to do to become an elder? How do you prove yourself if you've only been there for six months? You can't. It's got to be the long haul. When you got somebody that buzzes in and buzzes out and buzzes in and buzzes out, how do you, how do you have any kind of Ministry. People got to be able to observe your life and see what kind of person you are in all kinds of circumstances. And I believe that the effectiveness that you have within any long congregation you're in is directly proportional to how long you've been there to, to a degree. But to each one of us, verse 7, was grace given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he sent it on high, he like captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Talking here about spiritual gifts. And uh, we'll only be able to really just touch on some of the basic points of this in a, about the 10 minutes or whatever that's remaining. 
But the whole idea that Paul is saying here is that when Christ ascended on high, when Christ returned to heaven, he gave gifts unto men. And those gifts fall into two categories. Number one are the gifted offices. And he talks about that in a little bit in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teaching pastors. These are gifted men that God gave the church in order to build up the church, to mature the church. But God also gave each of us a spiritual gift. Now there's a tremendous amount of confusion on spiritual gifts today. Tremendous amount of confusion. And they're really not that hard. It's really not that tough. God gave you one spiritual gift. What is that? That's a divine enablement to minister to the body of Christ. And how many spiritual gifts do you have? One. You only have one spiritual gift. Each of us have a single gift that God has given us. Now, what's that gift composed of? Well, maybe many different things. Okay. Um, I have, for example, I can talk about myself. I have the gift of teaching. I mean, you're all here, right? If I was a boring, if I was a boring person, you wouldn't be here. All right. I mean, you find some other thing to do. So I, I know that God has given me the gift of teaching. That's one thing I have. But there's also some other things he's given me along with that. He's given me the gift of knowledge. I mean, if I don't know anything, how can I teach anything, right? If you have the gift of teaching but you don't know anything, it's not going to help you any. He's also, I think, given me the gift of wisdom. Now, wisdom and, and knowledge are two different things. Knowledge is knowledge. Wisdom is how do you make it work? What's, how, 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 do you, how do you take that knowledge and make it effective in your life? How do you apply it? So he's given me the gift of teaching, of knowledge, of wisdom. And, and he's mixed those up. You know, if you ever took painting class, you know, you got your primary colors. And, and every color of the rainbow can be made out of three primary colors. You can just mix in different proportions and get all of this stuff. God has taken these three major areas and has mixed them together and has given me a gift. All right. Now, um, he's given me these as my major enablements. I'll tell you what is not my major enablement. I'll tell you some of them. All right. Um, singing is not a spiritual gift. All right. But 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 I, I don't I don't have that. I'll tell you. God has not given me the gift of evangelism. All right. Now does that mean I don't have to evangelize? But He's not giving me that gift. All right. I'll tell you. Um, I evangelize, and I am to evangelize. I'm to share the gospel. I'm to present the gospel. But there are some people that can go up to anybody on the planet and start talking about Christ to them. I don't have it. I tried it. I went through EE. 20 years ago, I was in EE. 1977, more than that, 25 years ago, somewhere. I was in EE, and I'll tell you, I did not have the gift. I hated it. I didn't like doing it. 
I just didn't feel, you know, I didn't feel like it was working. I, you know, it, it doesn't mean that I'm not to evangelize. It's just that was not my gift. That's not my area of effectiveness. So, and I remember Daryl Farney used to always come to me and say, Alan, we need to get you. He said, Daryl, I, I, I know where I'm to belong. And it's not there. Now, there's some people that need to be there because that's their gift. And if that's your gift, you ought to be there. But I don't have that. Um, another one I don't have is um, the gift of mercy. That doesn't mean I'm a hard-hearted, cold person. All right? But if you're sick in the hospital, you really don't want me. I mean, you really don't. If I come up and visit you, you want them to turn the machines off. Really. Um, but I'll tell you what, we have a guy here named Bob Schroyer that if you're sick in the hospital, that's the one you want to show up. I mean, he just has that gift of mercy. And it just, I mean, he's just a walking light bulb. You know, he just walks into the room and, and he just, he's able to show that in a way that I could never do. I don't have, I, another one I don't have, I don't have the gift of um, encouragement. And what's that? Well, the gift of counseling. You want to think of counseling. I'm really not a good counselor. All right, I'm really not. Somebody comes to me and says, you know, I've, Alan, I've, I've spent 40 years screwing my life up. I've done everything wrong for 40 years. Could you please help me get my life turned around in five weeks? Get out of here. You know? That's me. I mean, that's just... Now it doesn't mean that I don't I don't want to encourage people. I do, but I, I don't I don't have the patience. For, I could not stand to be a counselor. I couldn't stand it. Having people come in all day long telling me their problems. I couldn't stand it. You know, um, coming in. That's just, that's not my area of gift. But I'll tell you what, there are other people that have that. They have that ability to encourage. Now, does that mean I'm not to encourage anybody? No, but that's not my gift. I know that. All right, so, you know, somebody asked me one time, by the way, what, what, does a pastor need that? He needs it. He needs some of that. Yeah, but not all of it. All right. I will tell you this, right? Somebody asked me one time, said, why don't you be a pastor? They asked me, uh, why aren't you a pastor? I said, because I can't stand the sheep. And they, 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 and and I was being a little facetious, but but part of it is, I get easily annoyed with people that have spent years and years and years following their life up every way they possibly can, and they want you to fix it for them. You know, and they come in there and, and they're they got all these problems. You say, well, when's the last time you read your Bible? I said, well, you know, I got one hanging around the house somewhere. I can't find it. Oh man. I just don't, you know, part of me is that I don't have time for that. All right? But there are other people that, that, that have that gift. The whole point here is I'm trying to get at is when God has given you a gift, He's taken a bunch of enablements. He's mixed them up. He's put them on you and said, here is your area of giftedness. Now, the question then, we'll talk about this more next week, is how do you find out what your spiritual gift is? Well, I think it's pretty easy. It's really easy. 
you want to find out what your spiritual gift is, imagine this. Imagine the pastor of the church walking up to you and saying, you can do absolutely anything in this church you want to do. Whatever it is you want to do, we'll do you can do it. What would you like to do? And that's probably your spiritual gift. What do you like to do? See, see, we got this idea, well, if I exercise my spiritual gift, I'm going to hate every minute of it. Right, 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 right. That's, God doesn't operate that way. God's not going to give you a spiritual gift and make you miserable when you use it. Now, I'll tell you what does make you miserable when you try to do somebody else's gift. You want me to be miserable? Make me an evangelist. Tell me I have to go knock on doors and tell people about Christ. I, I, it makes me, I'm miserable. I that's just not me. But I'll tell you what I do like to do, and I enjoy doing, teaching. I, I enjoy that. And I'm miserable if I don't do it. I am. I'm miserable. I'm absolutely miserable. But the gift of evangelism, along with the ability to go and share your faith with Christ, should you be able to say Basically, should there be uh, numbers presented? In other words, you, did you have a success rate in that, along with that gift? Part of it, I think part of, part of knowing where your spiritual gifting it is, is to, number one, what do you like to do? What do you really enjoy doing? That's probably pretty close to what your spiritual gift is. The second thing is, are people ministered to by you when you exercise that gift? For example, if I said, well, I have the gift of teaching, you all walk out of your half asleep, bored out of your skulls every week, would I, that's probably not my gift. So there's, a, there's an effectiveness factor in there. And we'll talk about that next week. Yeah? yeah I'm, I'm, a lot like, I'm a lot like you in that you and all that stuff. That's like one of my members come in and said, Reverend, uh, will you please pray for me? And... Uh, I left the church and had to stop by the bookstore in the mall. I seen them walk through the mall. I said, don't never ask me to pray for you no more. I said, I'll pray with you. He <laughs> said, I'm going to pray for you. You're going to need me. you walk through the mall. You want me to pray for you while you're walking in the store and you tell me something wrong today you couldn't make it to church. You want me to pray for you. And here I can see you in the mall walking through all the store like nothing's wrong. I'll pray with you. I'll call and I'll pray for you. Oh, they busted they got busted there. Right. Well, I mean, I, and I'm not saying, you know, understand, I'm not saying this in a derogatory tone to those who have this gift. I don't have it. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.